This is an audio-only version of a Then and Now video. To see the full video, search Then and Now on YouTube. Enjoy. In 1940, one year into the Second World War, Max Horkheimer was driving his car, still a novelty for most, while vacationing through Colorado. After, he wrote a letter to his friend Leo Lowenthal. On the journey here, he wrote, I have heard Hitler's speech. His word reaches over the plains and the seas of the world. It penetrates into the most distant mountain valley. But I have never felt so strongly that it's not a word, but rather a force of nature. All of a sudden, the proliferation of sound and film was possible across the globe for the first time. In a flash, the same music, the same voice, the same studio's production could be seen everywhere in exactly the same way. Broadcasting, for Adorno and Horkheimer, defined fascism in the same way that the printing press defined the Reformation. We might think of Marshall McLuhan's phrase, the medium is the message. With the flick of a switch, Horkheimer could change the station from Hitler's voice to the latest jazz tune. But why, we should ask, did the studio that produced the latest hip-hop song and the circumstances that produced fascism arise at the same time? Adorno and Horkheimer wrote, Culture today is infecting everything with sameness. Film, radio and magazines form a system. Each branch of culture is unanimous within itself and all are unanimous together. Even the aesthetic manifestations of political opposites proclaim the same inflexible rhythm. The decorative, administrative and exhibition buildings of industry differ little between authoritarian and other countries. For the critical theorists of the Frankfurt School, the individual lives in a world dominated by highly concentrated capital. The critique has more flexibility than orthodox Marxism, but the emphasis is the same. The manufacturing plants that build our products, the routine of the worker and the consumer, are all dominated by the profit motive and the power of capital. The culture industry is no exception. All mass culture under monopoly is identical. They say that the defenders of the culture industry argue that they're driven by the demand of their customers. They demand cheap, reproducible products that can be accessed easily and everywhere. The effect, though, is mass standardization. Something is provided for everyone, they write, so that no one can escape. Differences are hammered home and propagated. The question then becomes, why is everything infected with sameness, and does this have to be the case? In 1933, Adolf Hitler grabbed control of a nation. He bent the people to his will, and one of his weapons was this motion picture. Take the studio trying to appeal to the largest group of people possible to make as much profit as possible. 
Their research teams divide the consumer base up statistically. The board on the wall has areas colour-coded depending on income group, age, likes, dislikes. Group A, say, likes this. Group B likes this. Group C likes this. To appeal to the largest group, find the largest common denominator. The point is to average out the message to appeal to as many of the consumer groups as possible. The effect is that there's no real differences between Chrysler and General Motors, Warner Brothers and MGM. But now Group X is bored. How to appeal to a new taste without compromising the popularity overall? Make a single change. Inject something new without changing the overall blueprint. They write, the details become interchangeable. The brief interval sequence which has proved catchy in a hit song. The hero's temporary disgrace which he accepts as a good sport. The wholesome slaps the heroine receives from the strong hand of the male star. His plain speaking abruptness toward the pampered heiress are all, like all the details, ready-made cliches to be used here and there as desired, and always completely defined by the purpose they serve within the schema. This adherence to the status quo, the conforming with the majority, is, of course, inherently conservative. Hit songs, stars and soap operas conform to types recurring cyclically as rigid invariants. Planning is based on inertia, on status. All the consumer must do, rather than think about a new style of song or a new plotline in a film, is consume. Thinking isn't necessary. They write, for the consumer, there is nothing left to classify, since the classification has already been preempted by the schematism of production. They argue that the culture industry supports the tiring workday. Rather than think about the precariousness and difficulty of their positions at the end of the day, it's much easier for the worker to switch off, to consume the same libidinal routines of enjoyment without considering the possibility of difficult change. To be creative, to read something new, to follow a new plot in a film, to take the time to learn and enjoy completely new music is laborious, it's difficult. The culture industry organises free time in the same way capital organises work time. Everything is defined for you without room for individual creativity and difference. The dialectic of enlightenment is, at its core, a defence of the individual's own particular position in the world, his own passions, his own idiosyncrasies. Positioned up against a world of dominating instrumental logic and reason, a mass fortress of utilitarianism. Is it any wonder that the culture industry and fascism emerge at the same time? Both are the authoritarian organisation of capital through mass media. Whether it's the voice of the Führer, or the voice of Mickey Mouse. Both would rather that everyone accepted the same standard behaviour.
To understand their view on mass culture, it's important to understand the philosophical distinctions between the particular and the universal. The universal is that which all things in a category share. There is the universal idea of human, say. But actually, each human is of course different. Humans have particulars, particular properties, different coloured eyes, heights, accents, likes and dislikes. Mug is a universal category, but each mug has different properties. Film is a universal category. Music is a universal category. For Adorno and Horkheimer, the goal of the profit motive is to create all mugs the same and have every customer like and buy the identical mug. This is the path to maximum profit. Instrumental rationality attempts to use nature in the most efficient possible way to do this. As J.M. Bernstein writes, subsumptive or instrumental rationality disregards the intrinsic properties of things those properties that give each thing its sensuous, social and historical particularity for the sake of the goals and purposes of the subject, originally self-preservation itself. The more everyone is the same, the more products can be sold to them. Take Marvel films. Each character can pop up interchangeably in each film. Iron Man and Captain America can be replaced with new incarnations. Each storyline is essentially recognisable. The humour resonates throughout, and any new problem can be solved easily with reference to Stark's technology. It's simple and schematic, and easily consumed. They compare this universalistic tendency in art with the great autonomous artists. The autonomous artists use particular details to subvert the universal style, the universal mode. Adorno and Horkheimer write, By emancipating itself, the detail had become refractory. From Romanticism to Expressionism, it had rebelled as unbridled expression, as the agent of opposition against organisation. In music, the individual harmonic effect had obliterated awareness of the form as a whole. In painting, the particular detail had obscured the overall composition. In the novel, psychological penetration had blurred the architecture. Through totality, the culture industry is putting an end to all that. The universalistic tendency, instrumental reason, the culture industry, it all subdues and subordinates unruliness, oppresses the particular, whether it's in the detail of the mug, the plot of the Marvel film, or the personality of the individual. A small number of highly charismatic stars that essentially play themselves are universal enough to be in films, sing, talk on chat shows and sell products in adverts. They are interchangeable in all of these. Individuals, they write, are tolerated only as far as their wholehearted identity with the universal is beyond question. From the standardised improvisation in jazz to the original film personality who must have a lock of hair straying over her eyes so that she can be recognised as such, pseudo-individuality reigns. Compare this to progressive avant-garde art. Instead of conforming to universal principles that fit together in a perfect form, style and schema, 
They take particular representations of something new, something that needs to be said, say, or something creative and different, something not universal, but particular to the artist. The great artists were never those whose works embodied style in its least fractured, most perfect form, but those who adopted style as a rigour to set against the chaotic expression of suffering as a negative truth. The great artists had the ability to take an individual particular important statement and turn it into a universal statement that would appeal to as many as possible. Rather than conform to the universal, autonomous art should shine a light on what the universal has polished over, forgotten, tried to suppress. Great artists, they write, have been mistrustful of style. They take their perspective, their particular perspective of the world and blow it up, like Van Gogh's boot. Or Picasso's cubism. Whereas mass culture thinks of anything not tried already as a risk, it's the average of late liberal taste threateningly imposed as a norm. The culture industry, like the instrumental reason of the dialectic of enlightenment in general, denies the chance for individuals to express their integral freedom. As David Held says, the consumer, as the producer, has no sovereignty. No one is free. Everyone has to take part in the totality. The producer and the film studio have to react to the mass demand they themselves have created, while the consumer has no choice to consume what they, as a mass, have already demanded. The individual voice is lost in the homogenization of capital. But Adorno and Horkheimer's defence of modern art have led to some criticising them as elitist thinkers. But he's not just talking about what modern art has been, but what it could be. Any genre, style, theme, trend is defined by its structure. Every part is in some way in a position that makes it recognisable. The love story has the same elements, the music has the same progression, the comedy the same allusions to your daily routine. We need types of art that are in opposition to this. Fragmentary, experimental and differential art breaks this structure, commenting on or subverting the universal rather than being defined by it, like dissonance in music. Art and culture should be creating a strain designed to change the structure for the better and or make you think. Van Gogh's boot might seem banal, but when it was painted and hung in a gallery, it was revolutionary. Imagine the discomfort of elites in galleries used to seeing religious paintings or respectable art presented with this stark representation of poverty. What makes a successful work of art? They write, a successful work is not one which resolves objective contradictions in a spurious harmony, but one which expresses the idea of harmony negatively by embodying the contradictions, pure and uncompromised, in its innermost structure. Autonomous art should display ugliness and difference and perspective, bringing all the problems of the world or the problems of the particular individual 
to the surface, putting them on display, rather than conforming to the model. A single type of art should not dominate across the world, whether that's in literature, film or music. They write that now, personality means hardly more than dazzling white teeth and freedom from body odour and emotions. That is the triumph of advertising in the culture industry, the compulsive imitation by consumers of cultural commodities which, at the same time, they recognise as false. If you like these videos, I need your help, and here's my request. If you think you get the same value from four of these videos as you do from just one cup of coffee, then please consider pledging just a dollar per video. That's three to four dollars per month to keep this channel going. You can even limit your pledge to one dollar a month, and if you pledge five dollars, I'll add your name to the credits. To those that already support Then and Now, thank you so much. This channel just wouldn't exist without you. You can also hit like, share, follow me on Twitter and Facebook, etc. All of these things really contribute to helping Then and Now grow. Thanks for watching and see you next week.